Well, we're getting towards the end of Revelation, and uh, the, the last chapters are some of the most exciting and interesting in the, in the book. But before we do the, the last batch of three messages, we'll have a, a, a break after this week. Next week, uh, Susie will be preaching on proclaiming and following Christ, and then we'll have three Sundays uh, speaking about worship and uh, uh, just a few different passages that we'll be looking at around the topic of worship. Then um, the Revelation series will be finished with three more, three more messages. Um, there won't be Bible study notes sent out next Sunday, I don't think. So um, if you're in a connect group that meets fortnightly, you might like to use this week's notes for next week if, if, if you'll be meeting next week. So just be aware of that. Well, this passage from Revelation 20 is one of the most controversial and differently interpreted passages in the Bible. And it mentions uh, five times in five different verses the idea of a thousand years, and that's the millennium. And um, I'm just wondering what you think about the millennium. Do you have a view about the millennium and what it actually means? Or perhaps did you grow up in a church or did you come to faith in a church where there was specific teaching about the millennium? Is, is there anyone in that category here? You were taught about the millennium when you came to Christ? There's a few there, a few. And we had a few at 9 o'clock. One person didn't put their hand up, but they, they actually had been to a, a youth camp where they were taught in great detail about the millennium. Well, um, this message today is more in the way of teaching than a sermon, than to go out and there and kind of do this sermon. It's more to help you have a roadmap for understanding this, this chapter and also to understand its significance and the implications that it has for different Christians. Um, now, just to summarize what this, these 10 verses say, it speaks firstly of Satan being bound in the abyss for a thousand years, uh, where he's kept from deceiving the nations until he's set free for a short period. It also speaks of two resurrections, the first of the martyrs, those who've been beheaded because of their testimony, and they will reign with Christ for a thousand years, and then later there's another resurrection of everybody else. And then where Satan is released, he incites the nations to make war against God's people, but the armies that are marshaled together are destroyed by fire from heaven. And then there's a description of the second, um, uh, uh, the description of the judgment, and each person is judged according to what he's done, or it also says according to whether their name is written in the book of life. And then it says death and Hades, hell itself are thrown into the lake of fire, the second death. So um, there are three different main ways of interpreting these, these thousand years, the millennium in this passage, and I'm going to explain the three different interpretations. And for some of you, you might be familiar with this, others maybe not very familiar, and for others it might make your head spin a little bit. So um, apologies, but it, it's sort of a roadmap for understanding differences between Christians around the views uh, to do with the future. Remember also, at the very start of the series, I said there are different ways of interpreting the book of Revelation. You can interpret it as being about the future, about the times of the apostles, um, or about the general flow of, of history, or you can interpret it allegorically, symbolically. Um, so some of these uh, views about the millennium are futurist interpretations of, uh, of Revelation. Well... Um, the key question, um, which, which is the, the, the issue that sets the terminology, is whether Christ returns before the thousand years or after the thousand years. So it speaks about the thousand years, thousand years when Satan is bound and thousand years where Jesus reigns on the earth, but does he come 
back before or after the thousand years? Um, that's the question. Um, so, uh, or, or, yeah, so when does he come back? So the pre-millennial view is that uh, Jesus comes back before the millennium, and then the post-millennial view is that he comes back after the millennium, and the amillennial view is that there's no millennium at all. Okay, so let's just go, let's just go through those, and I'll explain it. There's this, there should be an image that comes up. This is pre-millennialism. Here we go. So this is the idea that what's described in this passage is a literal description of the future. So it's a futurist interpretation of Revelation. And it's saying that Jesus will come back, and at that point Satan will be bound, and then Jesus will reign for a thousand years on the earth. And then Satan will be released for a brief period, and then everyone else will be raised, and there'll be a new creation, a judgment and a new creation. So that's the pre-millennial view. We are in the age of the church, but there's a, another better age to come after Jesus returns um, that is something really worth looking forward to according to that view. Um, there is a variant on the pre-millennial scenario, and this variant holds that um, it's called the dispensationalist view, which is the view that there are different dispensations or eras in history, and according to this view, um, there'll be a, a, a rapture before a, a tribulation, a time of suffering and distress, and then after that, there'll be the second coming uh, with the church. So at the first coming of Christ, there's the rapture. He comes in the sky, and the believers are taken up to be with him. They all sort of disappear from the earth, and then there's the great tribulation on the earth, and then he comes back with the church, and then he reigns for a thousand years. So these are premillennial views. The dispensationalist one has the rapture as well. Uh, your head might be spinning already a little bit. So there we go. And if you've come from a church that teaches this and I haven't quite got it right, I apologize. But I'm trying my best to make it as clear as possible. That's the premillennial view. This, became, this is found actually already in the early church fathers. It's a minority view. It became quite popular amongst some Puritans in the 18th century. Jonathan Edwards taught this view, probably one of the greatest philosophers and theologians that America has produced, and a number of key uh, writers and teachers also followed premillennialism. So Moody um, and Torrey were premillennialists. In fact, I preached at the Moody Church in Chicago um, one, some years back. I was speaking at a conference and I preached on the Sunday morning service. It's a beautiful building. And I, I read when I was just finding out information about that church that you cannot be the pastor of the church or in any kind of teaching leadership role unless you are a completely committed premillennialist. Um, they will welcome you in the church if you don't have that view, but you cannot teach others. And that's their, their doctrine still. That's very, very strong. So I realized as I was preaching there that I could never be the pastor of Moody Church <laughs> because I'm not a committed died in the world premillennialist. Um, the Pentecostal churches generally have this perspective. So the Assemblies of God in a kind of original kind of core doctrinal statement includes... Uh, premillennialism as a necessary doctrine that has to be believed in order to be fully, you know, a, a, a member of the church. I suspect that today um, Pentecostals who come out of this tradition don't teach about the millennium as much as they used to in the past. So I've, I've hung out with lots of pastors over the years at conferences, and no one has ever buttonholed me and said, "You're an Anglican. You need to repent and and be a, become a premillennialist and uh, and believe in in the thousand years." Um, uh, the, even the return of Christ before the thousand years. So, um, 
That's the premillennial view. Then there's the postmillennial view. Now, the premillennial views tend to be elaborate, detailed, and specific. And some actually say it's literally a thousand years, others say a long time. Um, postmillennialism is a bit, a bit less structured, but the idea basically is that um, Satan will be bound and there'll be a thousand years when the kingdom of God will prevail on the earth. It's going to be really great. And then uh, uh, Satan will be released, things will go pear-shaped, and Christ will return. So Christ will return after the thousand years. So there's a, there's a kind of golden age of the kingdom of God to look forward to before Christ returns. That's post-millennialism. Um, I would say in, in, in America today, uh, the premillennials are, are very dominant amongst evangelicals. It's a big, it's a big force. Um, and uh, there's been quite a lot of uh, popular Christian literature about the rapture, um, uh, the Left Behind series of novels and, and films. It's, uh, yeah, it's been very influential. The third um, view is the amillennial view. If you read the Catholic Catechism, it says there is no millennium. So A means none, no millennium. That is, um, where it says 10,000 years in the book of Revelation, sorry, 1,000 years in the book of Revelation, that's interpreted um, as a symbol, as a long, complete time. It's not there is no specific millennium as such. And according to this view, the age of the church is the millennium. You know, we are, what that's referring to is, is the era that we're in now. So Satan was bound at the cross. Um, he was, he was uh, defeated at the cross. He's been bound to some degree or in some extent, and that's why the church is advancing, and uh, we are in the, we're in the thousand years. So there is no actual separate millennium, and then Christ will return um, at the end. Uh, there'll be, things will get worse, and Satan will increase in his anger and power, apparently, or effect, and then he'll return and there'll be judgment at the end. So these different views. Now, the amillennial view, it was um, Augustine early in his life, he's a very famous theologian who, uh, from North Africa who had a huge influence on the Western church. And early on he was a premillennialist, but he rejected that, he became an amillennialist. And so this view that there is no millennium uh, is the, has been the dominant view in the Western uh, church up until uh, the Reformation and onwards. So the Catholic church has this view, uh, and also um, it's been widely supported. I think uh, Calvin had that view as well, one of the great reformers. Um, but it's out of Protestantism that the other views became more, more popular and more influential. I am, uh, I think, in general, an amillennialist. I, 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 that's what I grew up with. That's what I've been taught. That the, that's how I've read the Bible in, in, in that way. Um, and I might be wrong. I'm open to other views. And uh, I, 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 I'm, I'm not absolutely passionate that that's the only truth there is about this. Um, and I think that... All of the people who've held these different views, many of them have been very great and sincere Christians who've you know, sought the Word of God and, 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 and studied it very thoroughly and carefully, and I respect them. Um, but, and, uh, so I'm not dogmatically amillennialist. I'm, that's just what, what, the way I think. So I think that we're in the age of the church, which began at Pentecost, and Satan is to a degree bound because of the cross, at least that's, that's the opportunity we have as the church to implement and um, Jesus will come, and that will be the end of the age. And then we'll be physically raised, and there'll uh, be judgment, and uh, the new heavens and the new earth will begin. Um, now, which view you take does, have in, does influence you. It, it, it influences how Christians think um, in different ways. Um, 
the theological outlook that people adopt affects how they live. That's another way of putting it. Um, and Christians have thought different things about the future and about how the world works, and it influences them. For example, it's not completely accurate, but Calvinists generally have emphasized predestination. And as a result, I think, that is, God determines who is saved in advance. And I think as a result, Calvinist denominations like the Dutch Reformed and others have generally not, as been, passion, not have been as passionate about missions as some of the others. So, you know, the, the, the way you put your theology together influences the way you think about life and how you live. So some of the things to be aware of is that um, the premillennialists are looking forward to the physical return of Christ and a thousand years reign. So that's a very exciting and a positive thing on earth, you know. And um, also this rapture, these dramatic events, these are exciting things in the, in the sense that they're, they're, they're quite a, extreme events. And um, so that premillennialists generally uh, are, are very emphasizing the return of Christ. They're focused on it. They teach more about it. Also, for dispensationalists who are premillennials, they generally have the view that God has a plan for Israel which is distinct from the churches, from the churches, his plan for the church. And so dispensationalist premillennials um, will have the view that um, Jesus will come back for Israel at some point, that there'll be a kingdom, uh, there'll be a restoration of a messianic kingdom in Israel and the Jews will return. At some point, they'll all turn to Christ and they'll all believe in him. That's the sort of distinct from what God is doing with the Gentile church. So premillennials um, in the United States have been very strong supporters of Israel because of this theology, and it influences their views towards uh, Judaism and, and the future of, uh, of, of Israel. So these, are, these actually are influential politically in the U.S. as well because premillennialism has such, had such a big influence amongst Baptists in the, in the U.S. and Pentecostals and these things play their, their way out um, there as well. Um, also, if you have a post-millennial view, that is that at some point, almost spontaneously, somehow um, a, a thousand years, a glorious thousand years will happen before Jesus returns, that's a pretty positive view to have about the future. And it implies that um, the kingdom of God will be realized on earth, you know, through the church and its influence so that there'll be a realization through social and political structures. So post-millennials generally um, emphasize the transformation of the world through involvement in politics and social structure, and they look forward to a changed order in the future. And that has some positives, but it has some negatives, because sometimes people end up entering into a partnership with a state that's very unhealthy, and Christians can confuse the kingdom of God with the kingdom of this world. And if you marry them too in this kind of um, millennium before Christ returns, you can forget sometimes that the church, we're not of this world, that's not our home, our home is in the future. Um, so there are, there, are, there are temptations and opportunities and passions that arise out of the different views. Amillennialists um, can sometimes be less passionate about the return of Christ than they should be, um, and because uh, it's sort of in the never-never, it's sort of a long way off, you know, and that's a problem for us, I think, in general. It's interesting, the roots of, of uh, St. Mary's Church in the late 19th century were very much focused on the return of Christ, and they had a, a prayer league, the seventh, Second Advent Prayer League, that was praying week by week for the return of Christ for many, many decades here in the church. And this was a very passionate emphasis of the church, and it should be stronger 
in our, in our thinking today. What do Anglicans believe? Well, I think you'll find there are Anglican premillennials, particularly from the 19th century in England, and uh, you'll, you'll, you'll get amillennials as well. There's been a wide variety of views. As far as I'm aware of, the 39 articles of the Anglican Church, which uh, clergy have to subscribe to, do not include a specific view about the millennium. So you're open to believe different views. And um, my brother's a pastor in Macau, and he sometimes is a bit confrontational in the way he speaks. And he once said, the good thing about being an Anglican is you can believe one thing one day and something else the next. <laughs> and, um, uh, of course, he's a completely orthodox believer. He doesn't think about that about everything. But there are some things on which Christians can have different views, and we don't have to fight each other over it. We can allow that the Scripture doesn't speak univocally, doesn't speak with just one voice on some issues. It speaks in different ways. And it's, you have to balance those, and you have to kind of come to a view. And actually... Working out these, these three alternatives with the Scriptures is an incredibly complex and rich thing to work through thoroughly because you have to work through what Jesus said in the Gospels and what the Apostles said and balance that up with Revelation and work out a kind of integrated account of all that and you can, fall, you can go in different ways with that as well. Um, so it's complex. Now, I really believe there's a core of faith that we're committed to that is not up for negotiation, it's not up for grabs. Um, and, you know, there are certain things that if you didn't believe them, um, I would suggest you don't become a minister in the church, you know, find another profession. If I suddenly woke up and decided I didn't believe in the return of Christ or in the physical resurrection of the dead, I'd probably want to find another profession. I would. I'd say I can't do this anymore. You know, I, I don't actually believe anymore in that, you know. Um, I, I watched the, the, the BBC series North and South where... Um, a woman from the south falls in love with a man from the north. And uh, she moved up north because her father, who was um, a bit of a Unitarian and didn't really believe in Anglican doctrine, he was an Anglican vicar. Uh, and he came to the point where he couldn't subscribe to the teachings of the church. So he told his bishop that, and he was promptly de-licensed and lost his job. And he had to go up and try and find a living in the north of England teaching classics to people who were interested in the classics. And there weren't many people in the north of England interested in the classics, so he wasn't making much money, and his, his wife was extremely annoyed with him, like, you stupid man, why, did you, why didn't you just tell the bishop that you believed and, and, and just leave it, that's all your other colleagues did that, and they kept their jobs, why have you put us through such humiliation and shame by, by telling the truth to the bishop, <laughs> and, um, you know, we, uh, in, in the Anglican Church, we are still required to sign um, a doctrine, uh, you know, to, to subscribe to doctrinal statements. So we have to sign the Articles of Religion, and we have to subscribe to certain principles. So you will not be licensed as a minister unless you sign on the dotted line that you will teach those principles and adhere to them. Um, I think it's difficult for people who are, are deeply embedded in a worship tradition and their spirituality is grounded in that community but they find that they're actually drifting in their faith and there's, some, there's certain key things they no longer believe. And um, if, if, if I had someone in the church like that, I'd welcome them and encourage them, but there's obviously a limit to how much you can, you can be a leader <laughs> if you don't believe in, in the teaching. One time uh, at the 9 o'clock service, there was a woman who used to sing in the choir and had done for 40 years, and she said to me when I visited her, she, you know, Mark, she said, I'm not a Christian. I said, oh, why not? And... Um, she said, well, it always occurred to me that if I became a Christian, God would ask a lot of me, and I just wasn't willing to give that. And she was in her 80s by then. Um, 
And uh, I said, why do you come? She said, oh, I just enjoy the fellowship and the community, and it gives me something to do each week. And uh, she, I don't think she told anyone in the church that she wasn't a believer, but she'd been sitting next to them for 40 years. Um, and I, I just welcome her and love her, you know, and work away at her gradually. Um, I was actually very sad because when she died, I, I, she died very quickly, and I was unable to go and talk to her before she died. Uh, and um, I wish that she'd, I, well, I'd been able to sort that out with her earlier, or she'd been able to make a, a decision earlier, because you can only put off being committed to Christ for so long, you know, at a certain point comes where you just run out of time. Um, but it's interesting uh, uh, that um, this is a big issue for the church in general, like what is required of us? What is the core of what we believe? Recently in the Melbourne Anglican, someone wrote an article um, saying that the doctrine of the substitutionary atonement that Christ suffered for us uh, was repugnant and it was unpleasant, that God would let his son suffer for us. And I, I, wrote, an, I wrote a letter saying, look, this is actually beautiful and it's embedded in Anglican tradition in our hymns, in our, it's in the scriptures and here are all the verses. And, you know, what is the TMA doing promoting a view that's actually completely contrary to the very thing that we are all sworn to support, you know? And um, it's very interesting. Someone then wrote in, uh, it's in, in the most recent edition, saying, well, Mark Dury's views were very interesting and he's argued for them well. But, you know, we're evolving and it's been 2,000 years and people can have different views and let's have another reformation, you know? But it's not a reformation that he's proposing. It's not a reformation that goes back to the root of the scripture. It's a reformation where, where you sort of go off where you want to and do your own thing. And as I said, you know, if I was involved in that sort of process, I'd probably quit. I'd say, well, I'll form my own church. I'll form the church that doesn't believe in the atonement church, you know, um, and, and find other people who I can worship with because it's, it's, it's not reasonable or right. It's not honest to be um, using a, an institution for a purpose, a religious purpose, when you don't actually accept um, the, the, the foundation, the core of their being, which includes the authority of the scriptures and its authority over us as believers. So the reason for saying all that is that uh, um, I think that the differences between the different views of the, of, the, of the millennium are important. They influence how you think about Israel. They influence how you think about Satan. They influence how you think about politics and church and the relationship between church and the world. Um, they influence your, your spiritual passion about the return of Christ. And there are huge differences between Christians around this interpretation. But it's not a break or make issue for me in terms of your fundamental Christian identity or ability to worship uh, and, um, and to fellowship together and to partner together in the kingdom of God. The other thing, uh, just to make a note about this, is that um, the real question for us is how we live. You know, do we live as people looking forward to the return of Christ? Do we live as people knowing that we will face judgment and that uh, our, the purpose of really Christ's coming is that our names would be written in the book of life, as Revelation 20 says? Do we, um, do we live as people believing that a victory has been won over Satan through Christ on the cross? Um, and yeah, I, that's the challenge, really. How, how do we live? But uh, just be aware that there are these differences. They have not played a big um, role in Australian churches and differences between churches in Australia, but they've been very big in, in the United States and in, in some parts of the world, and it's good to be aware of them. Um, if you're doing the Bible study based on the teaching this, um, this, from this Sunday, 
you'll find there are questions there to ask you. You know, what do you think this means? What do you think the thousand years means? How do you apply it? Um, how does it work in your life? And I leave that to you. I've given you some options, and godly people have presented all these different views. Go away, study the scriptures, and work out whether you should have a view and what it is and how you're going to live it out and do it all to bring glory and honor to God. Let, let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the scriptures, and there are many things in that that are very clear, and there are other things that require deep con- thought and consideration. Uh, Lord, I thank you that um, Satan has been defeated on the cross. I thank you that you've given us authority uh, to live out the Christian life. I thank you, Lord, that Christ is coming, that um, whatever happens in this world, it's not the end until he returns. I thank you, Lord, that we have the assurance of the physical resurrection from the dead and the restoration of the world uh, through Christ after his return. I thank you for the sure promises of God in Scripture which sustain us and help us to find our way in the middle of this demanding and challenging world. Lord, I pray that you would comfort and encourage the people of God here at Oak Tree and beyond, uh, that they would have great firm trust in your goodness and your love for them and your purposes for us all. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen.